Now let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Proverbs again this evening, Proverbs chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles you picked up at the welcome desk on the way in, it's on page 635. And for those of you who are returning uh, to pick up studies again or just home from vacation, uh, we have been camping down in Proverbs chapter one uh, for a number of uh, Lord's Day evenings, um, and uh, whatever happens this evening, this will be the last sermon on Proverbs 1, 1 to 7. Uh, just by way of introduction, Proverbs is a book uh, compiled uh, to fulfill exactly what we've been singing about uh, as you read through the first chapters, you see there's a constant address of a father to a son. And uh, these are, as it were, little um, help talks for dads to give to their children to help them to negotiate life as God's covenant people in a fallen world. And then, of course, we have a large number uh, of proverbs, often uh, single sentence, two sentence in parallel statements, sometimes clustered round a theme, sometimes quite difficult to discern the theme. And the purpose of these proverbs, as uh, we've uh, said, I think, a number of times, is through the teaching that is addressed to the mind to capture the imagination in order to inflame the affections to lead us to obedience to God. Through the mind, capturing the imagination, which is why there are so many word pictures, and you can get these television quiz shows that I'm sure some of you watch but would never admit to, where little sayings can be expressed in visual ways, and you're to guess what the saying is. Uh, capturing the imagination, giving you the picture. And of course, the purpose especially for youngsters is, as I've also said before, as my wise mother used to tell me, when I was seven years old, Sinclair, there is no substitute for experience, which was how I discovered this is an unfair world since I had none. But you can have experience that prepares you for experience, and that's the purpose of the book of Proverbs, to prepare you, often by these word pictures that stick in your imagination and have touched your affections, how to negotiate experiences that you haven't actually had. So that, as the psalmist says, the result is, and this is a wonderful thing to see in your children, that we become wiser than our enemies, which is hugely significant in our contemporary post-Christian society and we can even be wiser than our teachers. And we're all very conscious in this country that our children will need to be wiser than the directives that teachers are being given by 
our governments. So, we've been singing about the very reality that Proverbs puts into our hands. And I want simply to come now to verse 7. It probably has never struck your mind that the books of the Bible don't have contents pages. You probably never noticed that. They just don't have contents pages. They don't have title pages. They just kind of start. But often they start like this. Here's the title of the book. This is the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Here, in a sense, are the contents of this book. This is what it's for. And then in verse 7, what we have essentially is the theme of the book. Everything that follows is an unpacking of this statement in Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and then in parallel with that, to illumine that by way of contrast, fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, this is a tremendously arresting statement, if you think about it. It's arresting, first of all, because in essence it's saying to us, as believers, we always need to go back to first principles. And that's no longer in our educational system. And it's fairly frequently, alas, not taught in the Christian church. When you're thinking about anything, and especially about negotiating life as it is, you always need to come back to first principles and work out how you are to live on the basis of God's Word out of these first principles. The second striking thing about this statement is that it tells you what our first principle is. Our first principle is the knowledge of of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Not, not that it's one thing you need to grasp among many things, it's the foundational principle that you need to grasp. So, the foundational principle, the first principle of thinking and living Christianly is rooted in the being of God and our knowledge of God. And if I'm not mistaken, that statement comes as something of a cold shower in the morning to the story of the evangelical church in the last hundred years. It's an obvious thing to say. It's uh, dark to most of us here, I'm sure. I can't remember if I told you that years ago, 1980, I think, I was visited by the senior editor of Hodder and Stoughton, and in the course of conversation, he asked me to guess how many copies of J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, they had printed in their first print run. Now, that's a book that sold millions throughout the world, influenced so many people. So, I made my guess. He gave a little smile. He said, we printed 2,000 copies because we did not know if there were 2,000 evangelicals in the United Kingdom who had any real interest 
in knowing God. That tells you we've come a long way, thank God, but not nearly far enough. If you ask Christian people what is the absolute foundation of your thinking about everything, the answer might not be knowing God. Despite our call to worship this morning from Jeremiah 9:23 to 24, there's only one reality worth boasting in. Not your abilities, not your qualifications, not what you have achieved. Not let, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man in his strength, or the rich man in his riches, the very things in which we tend to boast. But here's something worth boasting about, that you know me, that I am the Lord. And then there's this third striking element, which is the first principle of our response to the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Or to put it another way around, what the knowledge of the Lord produces, first of all, the beginning impact on our lives of the very quintessence of what it means to be a believer is that I know what it is to fear the Lord. And because this is something so fearful to many Christians, never mind non-Christians, I want us to spend uh, the rest of our time this evening unpacking the significance of this that we began to look at last, last Lord's Day evening. I want to begin with a quotation. Point number one is a quotation. I checked it in the book, which has in the inside the date August 1969, which must be when I purchased this book. It is a staggeringly great book by the late Professor John Murray called, well, it doesn't matter what it's called. It's on the Christian way of life, principles of conduct. And he says this in it, and this is the first thing. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. It's the very heart and essence of what it means to belong to Him. Now, I think it's important that we just, just stand back a little and, and think about this, because I know many people are just, they're almost inwardly, emotionally terrified of the language, the fear of God. And it may help us if we think about it like this. Uh, if you look up the grammar books, if there are still grammar books around, uh, you will find that the noun fear, like the noun love, is what they call, those people out there, what they call an abstract noun. What does that mean? That means it's not a thing in itself. So when the Beatles taught us of my generation to sing, all you need is love, 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 they weren't very illuminating. They would have been better to sing, 
All you need is to be loving, loving, loving. Because love is not a commodity that's out there that you can get in here. It doesn't exist out there. It's an abstract noun. It doesn't describe an object of reality. It's a way of describing what actually takes place dynamically in our lives. And because it's an abstract noun, you see, we can be very easily deceived into thinking that love means love means love means love. And think about it this way. Um, I love Scotland. I love Radio 4. I love Dundee United. That's not actually true. <laughs> it's just an example. And I love Jesus. I'm not talking about the same reality, even though I'm using the same verb, am I? Love is not the same thing in each of these relationships of affection and attraction that I may have. So, so what is love really? Then, love is actually a reality in my life that is shaped by its object. It's shaped by its object. So, when I say I love the Lord Jesus, what I mean by that love is entirely shaped by who Jesus is. It's directed by who Jesus is. And the same is true of the word fear, isn't it? So, fear does not mean fear, means fear, means fear, means fear. It means always the same thing in every single possible context. It, there, there can be a fear that is abject terror, fills me with darkness. And the Bible speaks about that kind of fear, an experience of being paralyzed by the dread of something. For example, in, in David's exposition of Romans 8 this morning, God has not given us a spirit of fear to bring us into bondage. That, that's a fear of terror. That's a fear of, of being condemned. But there is another kind of fear. Actually, if you're one of those people who is bold enough to mark your Bibles, I suggest that you stick in a few hyphens here. And, and what you write is the fear hyphen of hyphen the hyphen Lord hyphen is the beginning. This isn't this isn't just fear and God stuck together. This is, this is the affection, the response, the emotion, the disposition that is produced in our hearts by the knowledge of the Lord. And as we saw last time, whenever you see Lord in capital letters in our modern versions, you know that's a translation of the name that God revealed to Moses that Moses began to use as he was writing Genesis chapter 2, 
that the infinitely great God who had created all things was also the tender-hearted one who had made provision for Adam and Eve in the garden. And he was the one who came down to Moses and says in Exodus chapter 3, I've heard the cries of my people. I've seen their suffering. I know their slaves. I, I watch their bondage, and I have come down to deliver them. It's this one who creates this affection, emotion, disposition, response in me, that He is simultaneously infinitely majestic and also tender and stooping down and loving. And so, the fear of the Lord, you could almost slur it all together as one word. The fear of the Lord is that extraordinary experience that only believers really have of awe and wonder and amazement at the infinite greatness of God that has been by some divine chemistry fused with a sensitive love and a, a wonderful sense of what it means for me, a sinner, to be loved by such a great one as this. And it's never just one or the other. See, this is why the unbeliever can never really experience this and probably never really understand why the Bible says so much about the fear of the Lord and thinks it's such a good thing because all the unbeliever's conscience can ever know is abject fear of the judgment of God. But here is this beautiful fusion in our hearts, and if we're, if we're Christians, we, we grow in that reality, don't we? That the, that the awesomeness of the love is related to the infinite majesty of the lover and the distance between the lover and me, I, the one who am so sinful, and He has loved me. And that's what it is in the Scriptures that creates this amazing experience of, of love that seems to be the same as fear. And yet, there's more in fear than this love. Actually, sometimes in the Bible, these two statements are put together. Uh, in Deuteronomy 6, we're told to fear the Lord. And then a couple of verses later, that is, as it were, exegeted as love the Lord with all your heart and soul and your strength. This glorious, mysterious, ultimately a, a reality that we cannot really parse in any of our languages but as a reality that we experience because we've come to know God. Remember how the psalmist puts it in, in Psalm 130. What to many people is just a strange contradiction. There is forgiveness with you in order that you may be feared. Isn't that something? You see what he's saying? Um, this is an old covenant believer saying he's come to understand that at the end of the day, it isn't 
It isn't the thunders of Sinai that create godly fear in his heart, although they may create fear. It's the sacrifices that have been made in the tabernacle, in the Jerusalem temple, these symbols of the promise that God has given that he has a way of forgiveness. That's what, that's what causes me to fear him. As some of the hymn writers have grasped this. You know, some of you remember uh, who are my age singing Faber's hymn. Um, Faber did not turn out well theologically, but he knew how to write hymns. And as Calvin says, truth is truth wherever you find it. My God, how wonderful thou art, thy majesty, how bright. Oh, how I fear thee, living God, with deepest, tenderest fears, and worship thee with trembling heart and penitential tears. That's something, isn't it? And, and we know what we know what he's, he's talking about here. This, this marvel that's created in the believer's heart that Nehemiah knew something about. You remember how Nehemiah prays in his great prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1? When he's there, he's intensely beseeching the Lord for the Lord's help and blessing. And uh, he says, Lord, hear us because we delight to fear your name. We delight to fear your name. So, if I may borrow Professor Murray's words, which I think really are true, the fear of the Lord really is the soul, the heart of godliness. We need to unpack that just a little more in a second way, because I think we need to emphasize not just on the basis of this text, but on the basis of what the rest of the Bible does with this text, that the fear of the Lord is just as important for Christian believers in the new covenant as it was for believers in the old covenant. Because you probably have heard people say, well, fear of God, that's Old Testament stuff. We don't, we don't fear God in the New Testament. You know, often when people say that, you need to say to them, have you ever actually read the New Testament? But people do have a problem. I think sometimes the problem is based on, on how they understand First John chapter 4. You remember First John chapter 4, verse 18, I think it is? Uh, how many times have people quoted this to you? Uh, you? You maybe said you belong to the free church, and they say, perfect love casts out fear. Um, you know what to do? You should say, could you, just, could you just recite to me the words that precede that and the words that follow it? And then it becomes abundantly clear that what John is speaking about here is that terrible, conscience, powerful, unbearable sense that we may have as sinners, that we are under the judgment and condemnation of God. 
and the perfect love of God in Jesus Christ delivers us from that fear. But we need to understand, as we've already seen, that fear is not fear, is not fear, is not fear doesn't mean the same thing, doesn't denote the same reality, the same experience in every context in which it appears. And this is why you have this, this uh, line that goes through the New Testament urging us to live in the fear of the Lord. Remember Jesus in the Gospels. Listen, He says, don't fear those who can kill the body. The one you need to learn to fear is actually the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. Do you see what the subtext of that is? It's true that perfect love casts out that craven fear, but it's also true that perfect fear casts out all other fears. Fear God and you will have nothing left to fear. That's the point. And this is why, for example, in Philippians 2, Paul says now, he says, in the light of what Christ has done for you and your fellowship with Him, he says, now work out your salvation in your own life and into the fellowship of your church, Philippian friends, in fear and trembling. What does he mean by that? Um, think about it this way. Think about the difference. Probably some of us have experienced both of these things. Think about the difference of somebody coming into your classroom when you were a boy. Usually it would be a boy at school. Ferguson, the headmaster, wants to see you. Do, 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 do you know? Think about the trembling. You might be sent to Mr. Wilson and Mr. Wilson was the best belter in the school, and he did it in semi-public so that the thrashings would reverberate round the various levels of the school, and everybody would know. And uh, you wondered what you had done wrong if you were to see the headmaster. But think about it this way. I mean, you're all such great romantics, you men, that you you had asked a girl who, with whom you had already fallen in love if she would meet you for… You know, I'd like to show you my golf clubs <laughs> or whatever. Let's have coffee. You know, you wouldn't be up to much if you sailed into that thinking, I'm God's gift to this woman. David gave you good counsel about that today. You'd be, you'd be a bit nervous, wouldn't you? You'd be, you'd be trying to hold yourself together. Um, I've never said this in public before, and I'll probably never say it again, but in the hotel my family was in the morning I was about to be married, I unfortunately spied two people I knew. And I, I'm such a person driven by um, politeness. I thought, I need to speak to them. I went over to them. I couldn't say a word. 
I was so inwardly trembling about the, the unbelievable, I need to rephrase that, the wonderful <laughs> reality that I thought was going to dawn on me in a few hours' time. I was so inwardly, you see. And it's the same with him. Uh, you've never met anyone in this. You've met people like this, I'm sure. I hope you have. People who love you so much, they seem to be absolutely determined that you will be your best and have the best. And they will give anything for you. And that love does not make you blasé. Actually, it causes you to it creates a sensitivity, doesn't it? It, 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 it? it can cause you to tremble. And that's just human. And they're also sinners. But this love, which is, which is why the apostle Peter says, you remember in 1 Peter 1.17, that as we live our lives in this world, we are to live out our lives in godly fear in that sensitivity, that consciousness that we're living in the presence of God and that God is infinitely great and infinitely holy, but God has also been gracious to us in Jesus Christ in a way that we can, we can never fully fathom, which is why the old spiritual went like this, didn't it? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The Voices of Harmony were singing that around Easter time, weren't they? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Why does it cause you to tremble? Because you are, you are overwhelmed by your unworthiness and His amazing love. And it creates, a, it creates an affection in you, an emotion in you, a new determination in you that you don't ever want to lose that sense of how much He has loved you. And that's what it means to live in the fear of the Lord, and the New Testament is, is full of it. So the fear of the Lord is the soul of godliness, and the fear of the Lord is just as important for New Testament believers as it is for, for Old Testament believers. And that leads me to the final thing, which is that the fear of the Lord, when it's a reality in our lives, as in the Old Testament, so in the New, has a radically transforming impact. That's true of Christians as a community. I'm fascinated in the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles as you, in the run-up to the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, when the scene is dominated by Peter and by Stephen and by Philip. In, in those opening eight chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, Luke constantly seems to stop the video. He, he presses the pause button, and then up on the screen, he'll give you a little summary of the condition of the church at this time. And it's fascinating to see the number of times he speaks about the sense of fear that there was on the church. He does not mean terror. 
He means this, this intricately woven tapestry of all because of the wonder of God's being who has come among us in Jesus Christ and the amazing fact, as Paul, you remember, says in Galatians chapter 2, the Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. And it, it was like a weight pressing down upon these early Christians. And the community seemed to be a community that was it was, it was as though there was an atmospheric among them that you could not find anywhere else in the world. And the interesting thing is that it was this that seemed, on the one hand, to repel unbelievers, and on the other hand, to draw them in. And so, Luke says, nobody dared join this community. And then virtually in the next breath, he said people were pressing into the kingdom to become members of the church. There's a huge lesson for us there. And I wonder if the fact that the fear of God has been so feared and so misunderstood in the evangelical church is part of the reason, not the whole reason, but part of the reason why so many churches have been obsessed, especially in their worship, with the idea of being sensitive to those who are not Christians. Now, it is of vital importance that churches are extremely welcoming to outsiders, and it only takes one of us to be unfriendly for our whole church to be tainted with the unfriendly spirit. Nobody spoke to me. But I wonder if it's ever struck you that it never seems to have crossed the minds of New Testament Christians that their worship services were for evangelism. Indeed, Paul seems to hint in 1 Corinthians, you would actually be quite surprised. He says, if an unbeliever comes in, you can understand why that would be meeting in private houses and so on and so forth but it's a not insignificant thing for this reason, which is in our own time, so much philosophy of worship has become horizontal, so that it's for us and it's for them. And if you throw into the conversation, what does God want in our worship? It's like, what did you say? What's that got to do with it? And this is part of the reason why in, in worship services, we actually want people to feel comfortable. Now, we want to welcome people, but actually what we want unbelievers to feel is very uncomfortable. Were you converted in a church service? Were you converted because you came in and you said, I'm really comfortable here. I kind of like this gig. No, you were converted because you began to feel uncomfortable, because you began to feel conscious of your sinfulness, because you began to feel like these people back, back in the Acts of the Apostles, that, that there seemed to be a great gulf fixed between the, the experience of these people and your experience. They knew God and you didn't. 
when you only became comfortable, when you came to Christ, penitential tears. So, this is very important for us. How is it important? Well, the Scripture doesn't lay out how it's important, as though we were old covenant believers and we were going to be given detailed instructions. But what it does mean is that when the people of God gather together, their focus is on Him and what pleases Him and how to glorify Him. Worship is, is not horizontal, it's vertical. Vertical. And that's why Paul goes on to say, you remember in 1 Corinthians, that you, there are all kinds of things that can happen in the church. But the most important thing is that when the Word of God comes, there is this sense that it searches our hearts, that it finds us out where we are, that the Spirit brings it to bear upon us. And if an unbeliever comes in, the secrets of his heart are exposed, and he falls down on his face, and he says, surely God is in your midst. Because this is a people who in Nehemiah's language, absolutely delight to fear the Lord. And I think we do need to understand there's been a very deliberate remolding of worship in the 20th and early 21st century. Those of you who have any academic interest should read Thomas Bergler's book, The Juvenilization of American Christianity, a very telling book um, about what uh, the lead, the, those who participated in young people's organizations in the 1970s became leaders of churches in the 1990s and turned them into young people's organizations with the kind of thing that was thought to be attractive to people. Now, what's the problem? We long to be attractive to people. We're supposed to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. But we need to understand that the, the main attraction here is to be Him, the great God, the God against whom we have sinned, and the God who has been so merciful to us. He sent His Son to die for us on the cross. That's what makes me come and bow down before Him. And you know, when that's true, worship is really cathartic, isn't it? I mean, there'll be something desperately amiss in our worship if you left on a Sunday night as dirty as you came in on a Sunday morning. And to think that you are being washed with the Word and the presence of God and the fellowship of, of yes, sinners, but clean people. You don't hear, you don't, you don't have to react to curses and blasphemies against the Lord Jesus or vile talk about women or having a great time by getting stoned out of your mind and and you get cleaned up. The whole of the Christian life 
as we learn together to live in the fear of the Lord is that we're, we're in for the weekly wash. We're getting cleaned up, cleaned up, cleaned up, cleaned up, cleaned up. And it's so real, we scarcely notice it. It has such an impact on us that we scarcely notice it. But the people you meet tomorrow may well notice it. They may dislike it. But as the process goes on and we grow in the fear of the Lord, then the impact is unmistakable. And the rest of the book of Proverbs, um, we're not going to take the rest of the book of Proverbs in this kind of detail of four sermons in every seven verses. But it helps us to live out that life of the wonderful, sweet, gracious fear of the Lord that we enjoy together in a world that knows absolutely nothing of it. And it makes a huge difference. Remember the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1? Get rid of these boy babies. What was so wonderful about them? They feared the Lord more than they feared Pharaoh. And that perfect fear cast out fear. No one, we've had a Greek voice, we've had an American accent, we've had an English accent, and we've had two Scottish accents tonight um, because this is a wonderfully international church. So don't think I'm prejudiced by ending by saying no one has ever described this better than the old Scottish minister John Brown when he says this about those who fear the Lord. It matters little to them if the world frowns on them, if he smiles. And it matters little to them that the world smiles on them if he frowns. What does that sound like? Back to David's sermon this morning. What it actually sounds like is life with Father. And that's our privilege. And I hope it's your privilege too. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the riches of your word. We thank you for the blessings of being together in this place and for the way in which, usually unknown to each other, the influences of our fellow believers strengthen us and sanctify us and are models to us of how to live the life of faith in a world of unbelief. And we pray earnestly for ourselves and for our church here that as you have given to us almost every age and stage of believer, that every one of us may look to those who are at the next stage and want to live the Christian life like that in the pleasures that belong to those who have this extraordinary benediction of enjoying living in the fear of our God. Bring it to pass, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.